Hey, my name is John Tolo and I'm an urban missionary. So Godtown is an urban mission training center that has begun to send people all over the world. I'm convinced that good news actually is the answer to every issue that we're dealing with in our culture at this time. My name is Alyssa Adams. I am the high school ministry coordinator here at Chapel Street. So last summer going to the Twin Cities, we had a lot of students encounter God in ways I don't think they ever had before. I'm CJ Valenti, 10th grade, go to Batavia. Last year I went to, I chose to go on the mission trip because I feel like it was a great opportunity to, to grow my relationship with God and with some of my closest friends. And even to this day, I feel like the people I met on that mission trip and the people that are in my group are still some of the closest friends that I got. An example of like when I really noticed God working was we were at Godstown, we were doing this thing where we went out and we wrote down a description of a person. When we walked by somebody and if we thought that, that description fit them, then we would just like ask them, talk to them, and just ask to pray for them. And my leader, Tira, wrote down just like, I'm gonna meet a, a construction worker by a van wearing an orange vest. And within the first 30 seconds, we walked by a guy going back to his van, construction worker wearing an, an orange vest, and that just, just like showed me that God's there. So my name is Sarah Hahn, and I am a sophomore at Geneva High School and went on the Twin Cities trip last summer. One of the coolest things was on the ship, like the worship was phenomenal. You just got to worship with all your friends and just, I think that was another huge way that I saw God's presence on this trip is just everyone was in the same place at the same time um, for a whole week, just spending time like worshiping God. I want to go back to the Twin Cities just because it honestly is the week that where my faith with God started. Like that's kind of where my like story starts. Cause I obviously knew God, like I went to church when I was young. I knew him my whole life, but I never knew what an actual like relationship with, with him was. So going on this trip allowed me to kind of like see that and kind of like practice like kind of living like Jesus and just kind of learning like how to serve others. The thing that I, uh, watch over and over again is that they come in and they actually bring the presence of Jesus into an area that may not have a lot of people walking up and down the street that believe in Jesus. A lot of the kids that uh, live in our area are completely unchurched. They've never had any experience um, with going to a church at all. And when they have other peers that come in and share a, a short time of life with them, playing with them, uh, working with them, helping out their families or stuff like that, it has a big impact on them and they get to see that there's something different than what their own experience is. It's a little shocking at first for some of our students who might expect like, oh, I've you know been to Chicago before or any other place that has people that look different than us. But I think going down into Midtown specifically or even um, the neighborhoods in Godtown, there is just such a different demographic where I think it gives our students a chance to really see the face of God in strangers. Definitely serving a community that like you're not used to. We obviously live in like Geneva, the Tri-Cities area. We're not used to like going out into like more diverse communities. So it's definitely like an eye-opening thing to just see where the different like places people are at in their lives. And it was kind of neat because you just kind of entered that and you kind of just went, went in and with like a loving, serving heart and just went in to meet them where they're at. Well, the main reason I want to go back is I grew really close to my friends last year and I feel that I'll, I'll meet new people on the mission trips and those that I am friends with, I can grow even closer with because it is extremely important to have friends around you that love the Lord and push you 
to strive closer to the Lord every single day. My faith just started just through the whole trip. Just It like kept building each day, just seeing like his presence every day. You start your day with a devotional. Like I carried it on into my daily life when I went home. And now every day I will read my Bible before dead. I'll wake up, I'll pray right away. I'll talk to my friends about God and just the things I've learned on that trip I took with me and carried home. Pretty great, right? As you might be able to tell from my t-shirts, uh, I get to be a part of the team this year going to the Twin Cities. Um, we've got about 100 students um, and another 30 or so adults going up. And then the following week, uh, our team that is heading out to Ecuador, student team as well, will leave that Saturday. We got about 15 students there and another uh, eight or so adults heading down to Ecuador after that. That same week as the Twin Cities trip, there's a group here from church that does Royal Family Kids Camp. There's a group right now that is at Johnny and Friends Camp up in Michigan. And so the church is, is sending people out this summer to serve and to love people well, but also to see the uh, expanse of the kingdom of God and to uh, learn from what God is doing in these communities, how he's working in these churches and, and how that shapes and forms our own understanding of Jesus. So just if you are heading out on one of these trips this summer, would you raise your hand? All right. The, we could look around you. We want to be praying for these people this, this summer. Um, in fact, after the service, we got some students here and they're going to pass out these cards as you leave, just as a reminder of, uh, to be praying, um, not only for these teams, but for Royal family and the other teams that are out. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do that today. And um, we'll dive into the, the sermon together. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you for these students, these adults um, who have taken time out of their summers to invest um, in, in your work, in your kingdom, Lord. And we're just praying right now that your Holy Spirit would be moving and working. Lord, we're praying that we would um, go with a heart that is ready to receive and to learn. We'd go in humility ready to see the work that you're already doing in these communities or with these various groups of people, Lord, and that, that you might in your grace and mercy use us to be a part of that, that you would teach us things that will bring home, that, that it will equip us to more accurately and more fully build your kingdom here. Lord, I pray that you would protect and watch over, whether it's the Twin Cities trip or the, the Johnny and Friends trip that's going right now, our team to Ecuador or our team heading out to do Royal Family Kids Camp. Lord, would you go before each one? Lord, would you use them in, in, in ways that only you can to speak your words, to be the hands and feet of your loving care and to form and shape each of them in, to more closely resemble you? And we ask these things in your name. Amen. We do appreciate your, your prayers and uh, being a part of the teams in that way. It, it matters. Um, I, I think I was, it was, I don't know, seventh grade, eighth grade, something along that lines when I was first introduced to Shakespeare uh, in a middle school English class. My, my teacher was starting to kind of um, give us a background and who Shakespeare was and what he wrote and why he was considered um, so highly uh, in, among all of the, the English writers. And, and so we began to kind of dive in a little bit to some of what he had written and, and they taught us a little bit about his style. And, 
And then we got to the part where we read through and studied and watched Romeo and Juliet. And so my teacher was um, explaining to us that this is this epic love story of, of unstoppable, unconquerable love, love that won't stop for anything. And so I'm, again, I'm a middle school kid. Shakespeare's a little bit of a stretch for me, kind of all around. And, but I'm, I'm trying, and there's sword fights in the beginning, so I'm, I'm engaged at that level. And, and then as you kind of work your way through the story, right, if you don't know Romeo and Juliet, this is definitely a spoiler alert, right? But at the end, they all end up dead, right? Like, Romeo and Juliet are, are and I'm like, this is, this is an epic love, like, this is a story about miscommunication. Like, if we would have talked just like a little bit more, I feel like this could have ended very differently. And yet, as I was taught, like, this is this, this example of unconquerable love, but it didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Like, Shakespeare, to me, was super depressing, and of course, like there was much more formative things in my life than Shakespeare about how I understood love. My family, my church, all of that was significant in that. But I looked at this story and I thought, that, that, that can't be it. And I would like to offer today an alternative vision, an alternative understanding of victorious, unconquerable love. I think there's a better story. Today we're wrapping up our series in Romans chapter 8 that, as you know, has been entitled The Greatest Chapter. And so when we started this series together, I, I kind of started by saying, well, that's debatable, right? And we referenced a few different chapters. And, but I got to say, as we've preached our way through Romans 8 together, it's, it's made a pretty strong case for, for being one of the greatest chapters in, in all of Scripture. If you're new here with us, if you're just jumping in right now, when we started this series, I, I, I suggested that we, we could think of Romans 8 as Paul's description of an explanation of benefits to those who are in Christ. Which I know we don't typically get super excited about things like that. That's an insurance term, right? That doesn't normally just get us excited. And yet, when we look at what Paul writes, it, it should. And along that same line of thinking, I also, as I was preparing to preach through Romans 8, I really wanted to do so with two target audiences in mind. At, at the outset, I wanted to, to work through this with the same audience that Paul writes to. He's writing to followers of Jesus in Rome. This is significant for our understanding, right? If you are here today and you identify as a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that Paul's saying this is true about you. This impacts the way that you live. Paul is grounding them in this fuller understanding of who they are in Jesus. But I also wanted to approach this text with this target audience of those of you who may be here this morning who are still exploring who Jesus is and what he's all about and why anybody would choose to follow him with their life. And I wanted to do that because I really believe that Romans 8 offers a compelling vision of why you should. Of, of why it's worth it, why you can trust God with your entire life and ultimately for your salvation. And so if, if that's where you're at today, first off, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're here, but I really hope today that you hear these words that we're going to look at 
you hear Paul's description of God's unconquerable love for you and that you receive it as an invitation. That you hear these words and understand that this is for you. This is available to you in Jesus. So before we dive into the text today, I want to start by just getting us thinking around a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you of God's love for you? So 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest, how confident are you of God's love for you? Think about that for a moment. I think intellectually, sometimes we, we can approach this and say, okay, I'm, I'm at a 10, I've, I've read, I've understood how much God loves me, but how confident would your life say you are in God's love for you? So depending on the day, de depending on the various circumstances that that you might be experiencing, sometimes that can fluctuate pretty wildly. We might have this really deep conviction about the nature of God's love, and yet oftentimes I think maybe we operate kind of in that like four to seven range where if things are really rough and I'm struggling, it's like I, I can acknowledge that God loves me, but I don't feel like I'm experiencing it. If things are going better, I, I might operate out of that a little bit more, but do I, am I really at a full, like full 10 confidence that the almighty creator God loves me entirely and fully and perfectly? How confident are you? With that in mind, I, I want you to hear this. This is in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're ending up the, the last section of this chapter. And this is what Paul writes. He says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for all of us. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And now he quotes here from, from Psalm chapter 44, the 44th Psalm. He says this, he says, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So he's, he's referencing here their experience in, in, in Rome. Their, their reality is, is daily persecution, sometimes life-threatening persecution. So this is the context that he's writing into. And then he returns to that question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37 says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? I mean, I don't, I don't know how you're coming in today. I don't, I don't know everything that you've experienced this week. 
But I, I needed to hear that. That, that. that is really good news. And I love the way Paul writes here because it, it, it reads to me almost like a, a, a rallying cry. Like he's getting his audience like pumped up kind of thing. When I was a, uh, a kid, in the, again, in middle school, I grew up in southern Ohio, so the Cincinnati Bengals were the, the, fan, the team that we followed. Any Bengals fans in here? That's, okay, Pete. All right, thank you, brother. There's one, yeah. Um, I said that last night at the Saturday night service, and somebody came up afterwards and said, I, I thought you said bagel fan, and so I raised my hand, and I... Um, but the, in 1990, the, the Bengals made the, the Super Bowl. They were playing the San Francisco Giants. And at the time, they had a cheer. It would just, it, and they still use this cheer. It just said, who day? Who day think going to beat them Bengals, right? And they would repeat it over and over. And obviously, the, it was a, the question, the fan base would respond back, nobody, nobody can beat the Bengals, right? Except for the 49ers that year in the Super Bowl, and, and, and then again the LA Rams this year in the Super Bowl, but you get the point. Like Paul's asking these, these questions, these building questions, he's rallying the church around who they are in Christ. And so I want to just, I want to take a few moments to work through these verses together. I want to talk about a couple observations and maybe some of the implications of what Paul's saying to the church here. And notice this first question. Notice how it starts. He says, what then are we to say about these things? What, what are we to say about these things? What things? What, what are the things that Paul's referring to here? It's everything that, that he has told us about who we are in Christ. It's everything that we've talked about over these last five weeks. And really more than that, I think Paul's referencing everything that he's written from Romans chapter 1, the very outset of this letter, all the way up to this point. He's saying in view of these things, right, this has implications. And what is it that he's told us about ourselves? J just by way of review here, I, I'm going to look at Romans 8, and this, this is really just a short list of what just Romans 8 has said about us. Remember how it started in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like if that was it, if that's all we had alone, right, that would be pretty amazing. He goes on in verse 2, Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Verse 15, you've been given a spirit of adoption out of which we cry, Abba, Father. You've had the rights of sonship placed on you in Christ. Verse 17, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. You're going to inherit his glory. Verse 29, you're being conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, you are foreknown, you're predestined, you're called, you're justified, you're ultimately glorified so that when God completes his work, when it's all said and done, you are going to be made like Jesus, right? His perfect imputed life is going to be put on you. And the struggle with sin is going to be over. And this is the short list. But I, I skipped a bunch of stuff. So Paul is saying, what, what are we to say? 
What can we say about these things? What conclusion can we reasonably make in view of this? Verse 31b, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? It means, hear me on this, God is for you. You talk about what gives us confidence. You talk about what enables us to live this, this life that Paul's been describing, this call as, as followers of Jesus. Understand, operate out of the awareness that God is for you. Now, as a kid growing up, we, my brothers and I were constantly playing backyard sports in a house of three boys. It was nonstop competition going on, right? Although I've discovered raising three girls, that's not just a boy thing, um, turns out. And so when I was a kid, we would play backyard sports and oftentimes I would go up to my grandparents' house in central northern Ohio, um, up by Mansfield, and we would play with my cousin would be there and we would play wiffle ball and football and all this stuff. And I brought this picture. My cousin is the shirtless wonder up there. I'm, I'm the one with the cool tube socks. Um, and, and that's my older brother on the other side of the football and my youngest and my younger brother, Jared. And so it would always be my older brother and my younger brother and then me and my cousin. Those were the teams because those were kind of the, the fairest teams. And, um, and we could compete and we had fun and all that sort of thing. But, but my older brother, my brothers had this unfair advantage. And that unfair advantage was my older brother. Because no matter how good, no matter how excellent our defense was, when it came to fourth down, if they needed a first down, all they had to do was have my little brother drop back, throw up the ball, and my older brother could toss me and my cousin aside and grab it, and it was a first down, no matter what. It was, it was unstoppable. There was nothing that we could do. And you've got to get, understand, this is, this is akin to what Paul's telling us here. Right? My older brother was bigger, and he was stronger, and he was faster, and he was better than the opposition. And this is Paul's summation of the implications of being in Christ. No matter what is opposing you, no matter what's coming at you, Paul says God is for you. Now, I want to just, I want to clarify something. I want to go on a side note here for a second. Because this idea has been misapplied and mistaught at times. In fact, it's, it's historically at times even been used to justify behavior that really is nothing like Jesus. So the way it gets kind of twisted is, is more instead of us understanding it as God is for you, we understand like that, well, God's on my side and whatever it is that I'm about, God's going to bless that and, and justify that. And that's not it. I mean, the passages like this is, been used to explain away everything from political manipulation to dishonesty to holy wars to the crusades. And that's not it, right? To, it's not that God is, is on our side, it's that when we are in Christ, God has placed us on his side. And that's an important distinction. We're working towards his kingdom. And while I say that, I also, I want to be clear here because I don't want the, to let the misuses of this dilute what Paul is telling us. This, this is the good news of Romans chapter 8. 
And he goes on and he says, how, how is it that we can be confident of this? What, what evidence do we have that God is going to ultimately come through? Look at verse 32. He says, he did not spare his own son, but he offered, he offered him up for us all. And how will he not also with him grant us everything? Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the everything? What is it that God gave up his son in order to grant us? Comfort, relative ease, the general promise of, of satisfaction. Again, people have, have misapplied this text. They've used a poor hermeneutic to kind of build a case for a prosperity gospel, and that is not what Jesus... I mean, Paul has been very clear already where, when he talks about the inheritance. It's an inheritance into his glory, yes, but it's also an inheritance into his suffering. If we had time, we could flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul just starts to list out everything that he's endured in response to as a result of his obedience to God's call in his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he starts to say, I've been broken and bruised and robbed. He's been chased out of towns. He's escaped with his life. He's been shipwrecked, he said. I don't remember if it's in 2 Corinthians 11 or just in Acts, but he says when he's shipwrecked, he lands on this island and gets bitten by a snake. Like, he's dealt with a lot. The everything, it's not about our comfort, it's not about the easy life. It's that he is giving us everything necessary to conform us to the image of his son and everything necessary to get us to glory. That's, that's the everything that Jesus has given us. In other words, Paul is saying he is all in. He, he didn't spare his own son. Tony Merida, in his commentary on, on Romans chapter 8, uses this illustration. I'm, I'm borrowing this from him, but he says, compare it to this idea. Is that if I was taking my entire family to Disney World, and I bought the plane tickets, I got the hotel, I rented the car, I bought the tickets to Disney, all of it, I'm, I'm in. And as we're arriving there, we spent the night in the hotel, we get up early the next morning, we're driving to the park, and I get to the park, and when I get there, it says $50 to park. And I'm like, what? $50 to park? No way, no way am I paying $50 to park. We're out of here, family, right? That would be... That would be foolish. I would never invest that much to then go away from the experience because of that. Merida writes this in his commentary. Following that illustration, he says, Paul is saying in Romans 8.32 that God has already made the big purchase at the cross. He's going to take care of our parking. If God is going to put forward his own beloved son in our place, he is going to see the ongoing work of our salvation. He's going to see to the ongoing work of our salvation. He will see us through to glory. He says the cross assures us of the ongoing, unfailing, everlasting love of God for his saints. He's going to finish what he started. Right? He's, he's invested. Paul in his letter to the Philippians said, that, said it this way. He said, I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He goes on and continues in this, this manner. He, 
ask a couple more questions. This is back in verse 33. He says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So here's the question. Who, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who condemns? Nobody. No one can. Because the one who is the judge has already declared that you are justified. If you remember in the book of Revelation, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. By that, it means that, that Satan's desire is that we would adopt an identity of the guilty among the, 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 uh, the, the idea that there's no way that God would want to use somebody as screwed up and as fallen as Sterling Moore. No way could God do something with, with me. And Paul's saying that's a lie. When you hear that internal dialogue going on in your head, you have full permission and authority to identify that and to say that is a lie. Because here in this passage, Paul's saying you don't get to identify as the guilty. You don't get to identify as the condemned. Who can accuse us when we are in Christ? Nobody can. Jesus has already secured the victory in the courtroom. And more than that, if you notice here at the end, he, says, he goes on to say, he is also at the right hand of God interceding for us. Like, don't, don't miss this. Oftentimes, I, I think I can read right past this, but this is, I want you to hear this today. When I was a, a college intern, I did my internship in the little church I grew up in, and my parents had moved about 45 minutes away to Dayton, Ohio. And so I knew I was gonna have a lot of nighttime activities with students, and, and so I ended up living that summer with my grandma and grandpa Moore in Eaton, Ohio, in that little town. Um, and I would get up in the morning to, to go into church and, and do my internship, and I would walk by, and my grandma just had this deep relationship with Jesus. She would be doing her quiet times, and I would just see her praying, and it would put this smile on my face, because I was like, I bet she's praying for me. Like, I'm pretty confident she's praying for me, and I knew she did. And it, I would literally kind of have this sort of like air about me and the knowledge and awareness that my grandma was praying for me. And as much as, as it was a wonderful thing to have my grandma, as much as I valued that and appreciated, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than my grandma. And she's really good. Right? I, I, how would it change your day if you started with the awareness and the understanding, if you just pictured as you're leaving your house in the morning and you walk by the room next to you and you look over and you see Jesus there praying for you? How would that impact your confidence approaching that day? Because beyond that, he's, he's, he's not in the room next to you praying for you. He's... he's interceding he's with the the hev our heavenly father interceding on our behalf praying for you this brings us to the i really think the central question that paul's asking in this this whole line of thinking here 
And that is simply, can anything separate us from the love of God? Can anything separate us from this love? Look how he ends. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Again, he quotes Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he answers the question. He says, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything? Paul says the answer is an unequivocal no. In all things, no matter what comes at you, no matter what you're facing, no matter what opposition you're dealing with, Paul says, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he goes on and he starts to kind of give us the scope and the scale of this. He says, it's not, neither death nor life. So nothing that we're going to face in this human experience can separate us from his love. He says, neither angels nor powers, nothing in the spiritual realm has the power to separate you from God's love. Not, not the present, not things to come. No, there's no point in the timeline that you can be separated from God's love. No created thing. There's no power. There's no height, no depth. Nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours when we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. The victory that Jesus accomplished when he walked out of that grave and he resurrected from the dead. He's saying, Paul's saying, that is yours when you are in Christ Jesus. So today, church, hear me. This is how much God loves you. This is how much he loves you. It does not end, and it does not lose. That is why you can live every day in the confidence and knowledge that God loves you entirely and completely and fully. In fact, he can't love you more than he does. And he won't love you less. And so if you're here today, and I was talking about this earlier, if you're here today and you're still exploring who Jesus is and what he's about, I, I want to invite you today right here in the room to respond in faith to his invitation, to his love. I want to invite you right, right where you sit right now, to pray a simple prayer and to simply say, Jesus, because of your great love for me, I trust you with my life. I know that I need your forgiveness. I know that I can't do it on my own, and so I trust you for that forgiveness. Jesus, I acknowledge you as king, and I place my faith in you as the one in whom there is no condemnation. And so today I surrender my life to yours. If that's you today, pray, pray that simple prayer. Understand that this, this love, this unconquerable love, it's for you. When we understand the impact, when we understand the scope and scale of God's love for us, 
It impacts what we fear, right? It puts that in perspective. It impacts what we worry about. It impacts the way that we worship. Like I get to, I get to be in the presence of the Almighty Creator God who loves me entirely and perfectly. It affects unity within the, the body of believers. It affects everything. It affects our mission and our purpose. If we get this, if we believe that God is with us, if we believe that nothing can separate us from his love, then, and really I think only then, are we able to live out his call fully, completely. If we're to live according to this kingdom vision, it's all possible because of his great love. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and, and we're going to conclude today by coming to the Lord's table. And if you came in this morning and it, you didn't receive the elements as the worship team plays, our ushers will make sure you have this. You can just raise a hand. Um, and we come to the table oftentimes in, in different postures. Um, sometimes we really come focused on the nature of his sacrifice and what it cost him in order to redeem us. Sometimes we really come focused on his grace that is available to us. Today, as we come to the table, as we receive these elements, I want us to focus on the degree and scale of his love. And so as the worship team plays, tune your heart into that love. Understand that that's true to you. By the way, if you prayed that simple prayer with me today, take communion with us. This, this is the first time tangibly you can receive this and know this is, this is for me. Receive it today in that knowledge and that awareness. In just a moment, I'll, I'll return and I'll guide us in receiving the elements. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he took bread and he gave it to them and he said, this bread is my body given for you. Today, as you eat this bread, be reminded of the great love of our good God for you. This is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Amen.